0: Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com.
1: Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm Phil Ford. This week we're talking about walking, which I realize does not seem like the most obvious topic for a show called Weird Studies. I mean, what could be more ordinary than walking? But let's not think about walking as we usually do as a means to an end, a primitive mode of transportation obsolesced by trains, bicycles, cars, and those annoying goddamn scooters that litter the sidewalks of my town and no doubt yours. No, think about walking as an experience in itself. That's when it starts looking a little weird. You might, for example, start thinking about how, as you walk, the scenery shifts around you. You're the one that's moving, not the streets and houses, of course. But is that your actual experience? The medieval Zen philosopher Ehei Dogen suggests that it isn't. In the Mountains and Water Sutra, he writes, Mountains walking is just like human walking. Accordingly, do not doubt mountains walking, even though it does not look the same as human walking. The Buddha ancestors' words point to walking. This is fundamental understanding. You should penetrate these words. If you doubt mountains walking, You do not know your own walking. It is not that you do not walk, but that you do not know or understand your own walking. Since you do not know your own walking, you should fully know the Green Mountain's walking. Now, maybe that sounds very mysterious and zen, but if you want to see if there's anything to what Dogen says, well, take a walk. Attend to your experience. I don't know what that experience will be. Maybe it'll have nothing to do with Dogen or any of the other thinkers we discuss in this episode. But whatever is there to be learned in walking is something you can only get from doing it. Salvatore Ambolando, Walking isn't just a way to get from A to B. It constitutes an entire way of knowing, one that is intimate with the world. It is not a practice of knowledge in the usual sense, but something more like a practice of being. As Dogen writes... Explaining the mind and explaining true nature is not agreeable to Buddha ancestors. Seeing into mind and seeing into true nature is the activity of people outside the way. Set words and phrases are not the words of liberation. There is something free from all of these understandings. Green mountains are always walking, and eastern mountains travel on water. You should study this in detail. Right about now, our regular listeners might expect me to start banging on about our Patreon. About how we're posting primo stuff there and how you can help this show remain independent and ad-free by supporting it. Maybe I'd make a joke about the mystical powers you'd get by following us on Patreon or tell you about the lively discussions our patrons are having in the comments section of our various posts. Or maybe I make some excuse about how I just got back from the national meeting of the American Musicological Society and am tired and behind on everything and can hardly be bothered to do any of that stuff. But instead, I'm going to draw your attention to the music for this week's show. Pierre-Yves Martel, JF's brother, is the outstanding bassist, viol de gambist, and composer who composed our theme music, the Love Theme from Weird Studies, and all the moody, atmospheric music beds you hear between segments on all our shows. If you've been following the show for a while, you'll notice that on this program, Pierre-Yves has composed a couple of new pieces for us, and they are nope. So if you like what you hear, check out Pierre-Yves' stuff at pymartel.com or pierreyvemartel.bandcap.com. Okay, on to our show.
0: Before we start, I just wanted maybe to take a minute to thank all the patrons and listeners in general who write us letters. Time to do our shout out Write us emails. I I know.
1: I was thinking this. Like We don't do shout outs and we totally should because at this point we have a community, a veritable community of cool fucking people who write to us, who write on the Patreon boards or who write to the admin at weirdstudies.com email, that's the the show's email, and and it's time to shout some of them out. Not all of them, I'm sure we're going to forget people, but let's... Okay, who do you want to shout out?
0: Carl Jung?
1: Carl... Oh, for a second, I thought you said Carl Jung, risen (laughs) from the dead. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Carl Jung is a smart dude, and he is not taking everything on faith, which I appreciate. So he was like very critical of our UFO Patreon bonus where we were like, we had watched a Bob Lazar documentary on Netflix, and we were like, whoa! And then Carl, who is a physicist, an actual scientist, comes on and is like, okay, let me tell you all (laughs) of the shit that's wrong with what Bob Lazar is saying. And both of us, I think, were just like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I, but man, that is a valuable, that's a valuable kind of guy to have around. I mean, quite apart from the fact that he's just like an interesting dude, Zen Buddhist, shakuhachi player, theoretical physicist. Yeah. And I can only assume a race car driver right. and, uh, and rap star, a professional wrestler, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so Um, yeah, shouting out Carl Jung and Carl Jung. And uh,
0: Nicholas Stanton. He writes great emails. Uh, Robert White. Trumpet professor. Andrew. Andrew Kirsten. Yeah. Who who,
1: uh, can be heard on the Patreon uh, and read frequently on Patreon because he posts a lot there in the boards. But he is the guy who did that long form interview with the both of us a while ago, which we posted in two parts. Right. It's a good interview. Right.
0: Stephanie Quick. Right. Stephanie Quick. Yeah. She did a really
1: interesting episode of Conspiranormal, I think is the name of the podcast, on sex magic, which I listened to and enjoyed and I encourage everybody to listen to. But she uh, also has a really good blog um, that where she writes about her experiences weird and otherwise um oh betty paz oh of course we got a shout out betty paz
0: fantastic artist
1: yeah she's done mandalas for both of us this is a service she provides people and you might think that you don't need a mandala but trust me you you need a mandala in your life you need betty i thought i didn't need a mandala till betty came around i know me too and she, she is so um, insightful, a shockingly insightful, like ESP, like psychic phenomena, Lenora Piper, insightful. And like, I don't know how she does it. She just channels who you are and somehow knows shit about you and is able to put that in the form of a painting.
0: Peter Mayer and Doreen uh, Poritz. Uh, there are a couple out in Malibu, I think, who are, who are super supportive. We've been corresponding since my book came out or earlier before we started the podcast and they always have super insightful observations and I appreciate that. And there's, I mean, it goes on and on. We can't, we spend the whole episode kind of talking about our awesome listeners, but we just, Uh, I got it. One more. Yeah. One one more shout out. Tim Dunn. Of course, Tim Dunn. Good looking out, Tim.
1: He uh, provided the translation for the Arseny Tarkovsky poem in our stalker episode. He's the guy who experienced the single most amazing synchronicity link to the show. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got emails from people all the time telling us about weird shit that happens in the vicinity of our show. The story of Tim's synchronicity is in the Wise Blood episode. It's right at the beginning of that. It's a weird story. I can encourage people to go back and listen to that. Anyway. What are we talking we about ta- today? Yeah. We're talking about walking.
0: And I think this was your idea. We're talking the walk. Very good. Yes, that's what we're doing. We're we're talking about the weirdness of walking. Uh, It came up in our conversation, our offline conversation last week. And I thought, yeah, Why why did it come up? I can't remember now.
1: Probably, okay, so I like broke my foot a couple of months ago. And it takes a surprisingly long time for the small bones in your foot to heal. And so finally I am walking again able to actually take walks with my dog or whatever and so i'm really focusing on how much i love walking because it was taken away from me for a couple of months
0: so that's one thing it's been on my mind and, and listeners in case you think that phil is now referring to his broken leg which happened at no, the beginning that's old news that's another one he broke his foot again i'm just clumsy <laughs> that's what it is but how are you feeling now? You're good? You can walk? You yeah. Can, yeah. Yeah,
1: no, it feels, feels all right. So, yeah, so I'm walking again. And, and it's a time of year where suddenly it's fall in Indiana, and it's the best time of the year to walk.
0: It's the best time up in Ottawa as well. You know, I can't imagine not taking long walks in the fall. It's like the fall's made for that. That's right. But uh, Delphine and I are due for our annual cemetery walk. Probably. You have an annual cemetery walk. Yeah, we started doing that okay. two years ago. So every year, my daughter, who is now just turned nine, and I um, go for a walk in the cemetery. I, I don't know why. She's <laughs> going to be a witch when she grows up. She is a she? witch. She has she she's... has an altar. I don't have an altar. She has an altar with her tarot deck and her. She's getting a crystal ball for her birthday. Wow. Um, she is. Yeah. She's got a full on altar, she's got a book of spells, which her aunt, my my sister-in-law, Mary Beth, got her, and she has actually performed some spells in it against, uh, you know, and I, I try to keep an eye on her because that stuff can be, you know, it's not... It can get a little out of control. Yeah. So I don't want a sorcerer's apprentice situation on my hands here. <laughs> <laughs> um But uh she really digs it. So I'm encouraging her to learn about it at least and to... So she loves everything that has to do with the other world. She loves the cemeteries. She loves the autumn. She We just revel in that stuff together, which is great. If you
1: see an endless procession of ambulatory buckets, you'll know <laughs> and it's Bruce. time to intercede.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the place looks like the Sorcerer's Apprentice has been through it most days here, so... <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so th- that's coming up. So that maybe that was one thing on my mind at the time. Uh, we were supposed to record this last week. Then I had the most horrible day in the world, just like everyone think, everything was going wrong. So we decided to postpone the recording till this week. And uh, in between, I went for a short two-day hike in uh, in a provincial park here in Ontario called Frontenac Provincial Park. And mm. so I got to walk uh, you know, about 30 kilometers over a couple of days, maybe a little bit more than that. It was fantastic. An immersion into the autumnal magic of this, uh, of this area. And um, did you do, did you do that solo? I did. Yeah. There's just a magic to walking alone. I mean, this is something from the, the essay I read in preparation for this, an essay by um, Henry David Thoreau about uh, walking. It's called walking. And he, in there, he talks about the importance of walking alone. Um. So yeah, I went solo, and I just spent one night out there in the park, and it was it was great. I mean, it wasn't one of those. I didn't see the white people. I was I was in the same park uh, oh. where I, I encountered what I interpret to be one of the the white people referred to in Arthur Machen's classic weird story of the, the the fair folk or whatever. But this time, I was at the other end of the park, so. Maybe they don't hang out there. I don't know. Didn't see them. (laughs) But what was interesting in this particular walk was that I didn't do a loop. So usually when I hike or when I take a walk in the city for that matter, I try to chart a loop so that I Mm -hmm. don't retrace my steps, right? So I just do a kind of circle. And this time I did an in-out. It was the first time I did that on a backpacking trip. So I went all the way to the end of the park and all the way back using the same route And I found that really amazing for the obvious reason that on paper, when you look at a map, a map is a digital construct. So you're Mm. seeing the trail, you're saying, I'm going to use the same trail twice, right? I'm going to go in point A to point B, then from point B to point A, and I'm going to just basically retrace my steps. But the fact is that the way back is the perfect obverse of the way in. Yeah. So you're actually experiencing the precise opposite of the trail you use. It's completely yeah. different, and yet yeah. it's the same trail. So I found that really magical uh to experience the same trail from the uh, the completely opposite kind of perspective. It was almost like on the way back you you have the perspective of the forest because that's the perspective that the trail had seen you come in when you oh. came in. And um I found that really cool. I mean, kind of a simple thing, really. But that's my story from the, this week's walk. You know, one of my favorite expressions is
1: the Latin "salvatur ambulando, which means it is solved in walking. And it's a couple of ways I have of understanding why that would be a motto of mine. One way of understanding that expression is to think of it as interchangeable with let's play it by ear. But it's not, it's not quite the same. Because if you say, let's play it by ear, that implies like, I could play it from the sheet music, but instead I'm going to just kind of wing it. Uh, And so that implies that, you know, in any given situation, you can do it the planned way or you can do it the spontaneous way. And, you know, I, I, I do like to say, let's play it by ear an awful lot, but... Salvatore Ambolando suggests a kind of situation that can only be solved in walking, where there is no sheet music, there is nothing to plan, and I am particularly drawn to those parts of life which can't be figured out in advance, or certain kind of knowledges that can only be had in the doing of the thing. Right. I mean, for me, that's music, for one thing. I've said this before in the show, you had a a great point you made once about how everybody who likes to think about stuff tends to have really just one question that they keep coming back to again and again. And I think the big question for me that I keep coming back to again and again is the interface between knowledge about things, propositional knowledge, and the knowledge of doing. And this always comes down to music. And in my career as an academic, as a musicologist, my big question has always been, how do you get the kind of propositional knowledge about music that we specialize in as scholars in the same room as the kind of knowledge of music that I have in playing? And I'm not sure that I've ever or ever will have an answer to that. But I'll tell you that it is, is a—I mean, it is, among other things, a problem of different orders of knowledge. But to me, the knowledge of music that comes in playing is the Salvatore Ambulando kind of knowledge. Um, it is in playing that you know what it is you know about this music. But that kind of knowledge is curiously resistant to a full verbal expression. I mean, if it wasn't, if you could fully verbalize it, it would be that other kind of knowledge. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um And... Walking is such a good figure for that because, you know, you're talking about like the experience. Okay, I want to jump back a bit and say something that you said that's very interesting, that maps are basically digital. You know, that you the whole duration of a walk, you know, it's, you know, I don't know. How long was it from end to
0: end from point A to point B in this? Yeah, It was about. About sixteen kilometers, uh, and so that took me three and a half hours. Yeah, so it's you know roughly ten miles. Um,
1: you know, in a map, you see the the whole, as James would say, intolerable interval. Yeah, uh, of course, it's very tolerable. It's the po- point of going on a walk is that you experience the interval. But like in a map, you could look at it, and that interval is gone. It becomes just an abstract knowledge from which point of view. A trail is just a line and that line is reversible. Like all lines are reversible. Correct. Uh, but, But experientially on the ground in walking, the experience you have is totally not in dialogue with that map knowledge. It's a different order of knowledge. And what is the order of knowledge that you get in walking? You can only get it in walking. You will only know what it feels like to traverse the trail in actually walking it. So, that's a, a, a case of literally and more abstractly Salvatore ambulando yeah. So, if I'm talking just in a really intellectual kind of way, say, what is walking to me? Walking is a great emblem or symbol of this very general principle of this kind of knowledge, this Salvator Ambulando kind of knowledge that pertains to music performance, that pertains to really everything I value most in life. But then at the same time, in making it super intellectual like that, I'm also in danger of turning walking into this abstract figure instead of what it is, which is actually a lived concrete practice of moving your body through space.
0: So I'm reminded of a passage from Moby Dick. Herman Melville wrote, it does not appear on any map. Real places never do. Mm. I remember realizing when I moved back to Ottawa and I started taking walks around Vanier, which is actually the uh, neighborhood where I grew up, but I hadn't lived there for 15 years. When I came back, I started taking walks around again and... I remember I, I started by looking it up on Google Maps and looking at all the, it's a very strange labyrinthine kind of neighborhood with streets going all over the place. There's no grid. It's completely crazy. It looks like it was planned by a mad person. <laughs> I think it's just because when it was settled, people just build wherever they wanted. And it's just the streets were built around that plan. So um, I, uh, and then realizing how different the terrain was while you're actually traversing it, wandering about on it, uh how different it was from how it appears on the map. And I realized in that moment, I had this kind of like epiphany while walking that Google Maps hadn't mapped a lick of the world. Not a square inch of reality actually appeared in that mm-hmm. satellite monstrosity that is Google Maps. <laughs> that that they haven't mapped a single thing. There be dragon still applies to every fucking parcel of this planet. Yep. Because the real discovery takes place at such a a fine kind of like such a micro level. Yeah. Um, It's not in discovering some new continent that you experience the real. It's in seeing, you know, that telephone pole in the right light, in turning that corner and suddenly being confronted with a particular cloud formation that's kind of dwarfing the, the surrounding landscape suddenly or something like that. that's where the, the the unpredictable real reveals itself. And what's interesting what you were just saying is that there's a kind of intelligence you know, manifests itself on walks that isn't available to the armchair thinker who's trying to come up with stuff. that's right. you know there's Nietzsche has a quote he, he wrote, uh, sit as little as possible, do not believe any idea that was not born in the open air and a free movement, mm-hmm. in which the muscles do not also revel. That's great. All prejudices uh, emanate from the bowels. Sitting still, he writes, the real sin against the Holy Ghost. Wow. Which uh, speaks of, the, uh, of God as an imminent entity, right? Mm -hmm. The Holy Ghost is the imminence of God in theology. Like the sin against the inherent intelligence of this world is to sit still and think you can figure that world out without moving. Whereas in fact, when the muscles are engaged, when your body is out, when you expose yourself to the elements, you're... um, Making possible a new type of intelligencing that's not available to you. Otherwise, yep. it's the kind of no. It's a kind of gnosis, yes. and it's the gnosis that we observe in, for example, in the migratory patterns of birds. Right? Like, how do those birds know how to get from you know point A to point B across this continent at the right time of year? Well you know, it's not that their little bird brains are conceptualizing as though they had a map. Mm-hmm. They're constantly interacting with the terrain. The thinking happens between the birds and the land, right? At yeah, least that's the way I, you know. I, I'm i conceiving it. There's a kind of like a, a co-creation that happens in those situations where the variables are so multiple as to be like literally infinite that the way that you navigate an environment like that Requires a type of thinking that's just not available to us when we're sitting down and using just our noggins to try to work through a problem. It's not the same kind of thinking. It's not the same kind of knowledge. It's a kind of gnosis of walking, which I find probably the most refreshing aspect of um, of walking is, is to experience that kind of gnosis, that simplicity, that kind of naked thought. I think gnosis is exactly a
1: figure uh, to bring in here. Because, you know, that is a kind of knowledge that can only come in the experiencing of something. And there is no replacement of gnosis by, you know, the operations of reason, for example, um, or just abstract knowledge. Uh, You know, there's an essay that I wrote years ago uh, when I was still a postdoc fresh out of graduate school that I never published, but there's a figure that I coined in that. I was thinking about performance generally. I was thinking about my big problem. Like, how do you put, you know, these two orders of knowledge together in the same room? You know, ideas about music versus the ideas of music had in playing. And one place that that goes is... In the evaluation of musicians and certain musicians who have a reputation for being, you know, thinking musicians, Glenn Gould is one example. But then there's some musicians who have almost the opposite reputation, uh, like Vladimir Horowitz, who intellectual critics like Virgil Thompson always tended to mock as being a kind of a brainless thimble rigger, you know, somebody who is just who is good at like digital tricks, you know, uh, fast hands, purely physical, athletic motion, unharnessed to any kind of thought about the music. And I've always kind of hated this because that's a kind of thinking about music that almost treats performance as if it were just a a different kind of analysis. Right. Like instead of an analysis that you publish in a academic paper, it's like a a demonstration of an analysis. But that to me just fundamentally misunderstands something very deep about music and it understands something deep about, for example, Vladimir Horovitz's art. And I got really into analyzing what he does with this uh, Mozart sonata. And it's not even a, I mean, you know, purists would be like, what are you listening to Horvitz playing Mozart for? It's so impure. It's a very romantic way of playing basically classical music. But to me, there's a kind of genius in that playing and, but it's a genius it doesn't have to do and I, I found this one little technical feature which I'm not going to go into but uh, a, th- a sort of thing that analysts would really instantly glom onto and mm-hmm. you say why did he make this particular artistic choice at that particular structural moment well it doesn't make sense if you're thinking about it in terms of reified structure if you're thinking of it in terms of the map you know that uh, 30,000 foot bird's eye view Of the composition. But if you're thinking about it as a performer who is solving it in walking, who is moving through the piece and responding to the sensuous immediacy of the tones that he's creating and responding to that reality, then he's negotiating that moment with a very, very high order of intelligence. But it's not the same kind of intelligence. And this is the term I came for it it's thinking with the ear. Right, and to get it back to
0: walking, you know what we're talking about here is a thinking with the body, the, the body and, and the earth, the the, the terrain. Yeah, those belong to the same plane. It's, I mean, we're 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 back at the you know intellectualism versus process. Yes, uh, you know those exactly. two, like that kind of Jamesian dichotomy that you have. At some point, you have to choose whether you're going to live in a world of concepts where things are always reversible and opposable and clear and crystalline in your mind. Mm -hmm. Geometrical. And all the things in the world have their corresponding concepts, and the concepts give those things their reality. And therefore, reality is experienced in thinking the world conceptually, Mm -hmm. or whether you're going to choose a path, (laughs) literally or figuratively, where the concepts are perceived as the constructs things we make up, the things we invent in order to make sense of a reality which always eludes conceptualization. And it's in experiences like walking or playing by ear that one can uh, get an immediate experience of that underlying reality, which conceptualization tends to conceal. But you can't, you know, of course, the, 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 the kind of conundrum or the the, the, the the paradox is that you can't conceptualize the unconceptualizable. That's right. Unconceptualizable. So therefore, the type of thought that you're engaging in when you're in that process world is very strange, very weird. It's a weird kind of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a moment on my walk last week where... I do this all the time. You're walking for hours. So you give time to try different things. And one of the things I tend to try is to focus, which is that in itself is a weird thing. I don't know how neurologically it works, but you focus on the, on your peripheral vision. You ever do that when you're walking? It's like, you just pay attention. Your brain pays attention to the periphery. And all of a sudden it feels like you're standing still and the trail is walking. Yeah, The trail is moving, right? You know that feeling? It's like you're on a dolly with a camera. So, uh, or zooming or whatever. You're in a Tarkovsky movie. Exactly. Or a Hitchcock movie, if you're, if you've taken a wrong turn or whatever. (laughs) And uh, and that's where you understand things like Dogen's writings about the mountains walking. Yeah. Is that the, the act of walking is localizable to me, to my body, to my legs and my effort and my plans only at the conceptual level. The word walking, once you're stepped out of that field of you know, opposable, reversible concepts of that that digital world of thought. Once you've stepped out of that, walking means also what the trail is doing, what the air is doing. What walking is redefined with each step. Walking is the thing that's happening now, which involves not just my body and my plans and my charted course, but. The air and the earth and the smells and the textures and the colors and all those things are engaged, and all those things together uh, occasion the creation of this concept that I call walking. Yeah, it comes before, and it's a reversal of our usual way of thinking. Well, one way of thinking about it is
1: uh, to use cybernetics, the idea of like mm-hmm. you know Gregory Bateson's ideas of cybernetics, where you say that the human body and the path and the mountains. Um, that that forms a single system, a cybernetic system. And so you're not, you know, the intelligence that is in walking is not just in the body of the walker, much less imprisoned in the skull of the walker. It's imminent in the total machinery, the system that includes the walker and the path. That's one way of thinking about it. Another way to think about it, what you just said, is to think mythically. Uh, And I'm thinking about the giant Antaeus. This is one of the 12 labors of Hercules. Right. And Antaeus was a giant who forced travelers to compete with him in a wrestling match, and he would kill them and take their skulls. You know, a, a good old time monster, a good mythological beast, and one of Hercules' labors was to wrestle him, and uh, needless to say, I'm going to enjoy this kind of myth because it involves combat sports, but Hercules at first can't beat him, can't win. He keeps getting thrown, and he realizes that Antaeus is not just... uh, Antaeus, he's not just this individual, that he is also paired with the earth. He is of the earth. That's how he derives his unstoppable, invincible strength. And so once Hercules figures that out, he just gets him in a bear hug and lifts him off the ground and, and, uh, and crushes him because Antaeus suddenly loses his strength when he's divorced from the earth. And that to me is like a myth, a mythic
0: archetype of what happens when we walk. Right. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. That's a beautiful uh analogy. It's it it points to the mystery of all this too. Mm-hmm. Right? The inherent intelligence of that to which we attribute no intelligence. And yeah. the giant as a figure of that strange intelligence. There's a there's a great um poem by Wallace Stevens called notes toward a supreme fiction. It's kind of one of his magnum opuses or opi. (laughs) And it's very short. I'm just going to read the little section that has to do with what we're talking about now. And Mm -hmm. I think it it gets to exactly what you're, you're, you're saying here. Perhaps the truth depends on a walk around the lake, a composing as the body tires, a stop to see hepatica, a stop to watch a definition growing certain, and await within that certainty, a rest in the swags of pine trees bordering the lake. Perhaps there are times of inherent excellence, as when the cock crows on the left and all is well, incalculable balances at which a kind of Swiss perfection comes. And a familiar music of the machine sets up its, its schwermerai, not balances that we achieve, but balances that happen, as a man and woman meet in love forthwith. Perhaps there are moments of awakening, extreme, fortuitous, personal, in which we more than awaken, sit on the edge of sleep as on an elevation and behold the academies like structures in a mist. I just love that thing of of that the the perfection, the, the thought, the idea comes from the encounter with the other, that it doesn't come from your head. That it is revealed to you in giving up, in fact, and precisely in giving up authority over your own thoughts, authority over opinion, authority over ideas about the world. Yeah. That there are ideas implicit in situations. This is very Deleuzean. That a walk, in a sense, is what Deleuze calls, in a very technical sense, in difference of repetition, a problem. But the problem, all the solutions to a problem are already part of, what, of the problem itself. And that... It's only in engaging with the problem as its own thing, not as just a kind of like plot point in your head, as its own thing that has shades and aspects that you can't yet see, that a real idea comes to the fore, a real thought. And maybe that's also what Nietzsche is talking about when he's saying that all my great thoughts came from walking. It's because in walking, all of a sudden you're not just kind of juggling your own opinions around or your inherited knowledge around new things can come to the fore, mm-hmm. new ways of thinking, new yep. ways of seeing can reveal themselves to you. Yeah. Even if you can't completely articulate them. And even if you forget them, when you get back from the walk, I had so many thoughts that I wanted to share with you on this walk in Frontenac that I've already forgotten because I wouldn't take the time to stop and write them, yeah. which Nietzsche was constantly doing. He was constantly walking and writing and stopping and writing. Um, that there are ideas out there. And it's yeah. part of that, that sense that ideas aren't made, they're found, right? Yeah. David Lynch is big on that. You're mm-hmm. going fishing. And every kind of walk is kind of a, a hunting expedition after the white stag of a new idea, right? To get back to the idea of walking in the, in the chivalric tradition of, of hunting, of, of looking for something that can't really be found. And yet in its not being found, reveals itself to you. Gives itself over to you It's not about getting to the end It's about the process of the hunt itself
1: Well I feel like you just described conversations When conversations are really cracking I mean like I feel like that's the Weird secret of our show I mean if you like our show I mean if you don't There's no secret to it It's just we're two guys who suck But if you do like our show Then you know I have said this before I don't come into these conversations with a whole bunch of ideas all loaded up and ready to go. I have certain notions that I'm like, oh, I might want to hit that mark. Like For example, I've got a passage from Michel de Cherteau's, Practice of everyday life that pertains to stuff that we've been talking about. You know, I've got the book open next to me. So, you know, this is not all just a wild freeform improvisation, but I never know what we're going to talk about. I I have a basic idea, but that plan, that rough planning, doesn't at all have to do with the actual stuff that we get into. And that stuff we get into, it's not my idea, it's not your idea. It is. The conversations idea, the conversation is like this emergent intelligence that comes from the interaction of you and me from this little cybernetic system that involves, yeah. you know, the Zoom hookup and our you know, headphones and all of that stuff. But the all of those components go into making up a conversation that functions exactly as a walk does in the way that you just described it. Uh, each of these conversations is a
0: problem in that deleuzian sense in that deleuzian sense it's a problem's a problematic word if we don't specify that we mean it in the very specific sense that deleuze means mm. i would use the word mystery instead nice. of problem there i, I prefer um, that but deleuze doesn't like the word mystery that's for sure the french poststructuralists don't like the word mystery but exactly and um, the, yeah the plan never survives i mean sometimes i'll have a plan of sorts you know a few ideas written down especially at the beginning when we started doing this podcast I would kind of plan out what I wanted to say but of course the plan would like almost literally kind of burn in front of me to ashes the minute we started talking it suddenly it, it, it became anemic it looked dead on the page yeah, exactly as the conversation started and uh as you know I play role-playing games and I'm a game master which means kind of I design kind of the story and the setting that my players then experience and there's a saying in that community which is that no plan survives contact with players. So, yeah. Another way of saying the same
1: thing is what Mike Tyson said. Everybody's got a plan till they get punched in the face. Right. <laughs> exactly. and, and, and a fight is a conversation too. A fight is a walk too.
0: Yeah. And well, Maybe anything worth doing in life is a walk, a journey, yeah. a quest or whatever. Yeah. There's like, uh, cre- certainly cr- writing a book is like that. Yeah, you can't. It's like, <laughs> yep. who who writes a book when you have this specific outline? You just kind of follow your outline and and produce what somehow existed. Well, lots of people that do. Outline. Yeah, but those are shit books. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think so.
1: I've always i've I've never been able. I mean, like when you're in school, they always say, "Well, when you write an essay, you got to have an outline." Right. I never have outlines, and actually, I've. There's a guy named Tom Matheson who's a a great now retired scholar of um music in ancient Greece, just a profound old school scholar. And somebody told me a story. He used to teach the music history undergraduate class that I teach now. And, uh, he is famous for the incandescent brilliance of his lectures, that his lectures, you know, you could record them and write them down and each of them would be a perfect little literary masterwork, a perfect little essay of music history. And, uh, famous for this effortless mastery. And apparently the last day of class one year, he it, he was, it gave him some thought. He had to think about it. He's like, oh, this is going to, I, I need to sum up everything that had been said. And uh, I mean, I wasn't there, but knowing Tom, it was a, uh, a coup de maître, you know, a, a, a final sort of uh, transcending synthesis of everything, right? and he uh, he usually didn't work from notes. And one of his graduate assistants saw that he had a page of notes that he had written and was really curious what Tom's outline was. And he looked at it and it was three headings. One, 18th century. Two, 19th century. Three, (laughs) 20th century. And that was his outline. (laughs) And that's how I do outlines. I loved hearing that about Tom.
0: Yeah, no, and, and to be fair, I do outlines too, and I, I actually enjoy doing outlines, but always with the notion that they will become useless in time. They're like, it's like a map. I would never go hiking without a map. Yeah, it's maps like, are yeah. digital, but you don't just go fucking sauntering into the woods aimlessly and, you know, um, <laughs> to be eaten by bears. Right. It's it's the planning that allows you to improvise. Yes. And that's actually very true of of musical improvisation. Right. You know. You need shit in your pocket. You need to have some kind of map in your head, even if only to to disobey its dictates and to do your own thing. It's like, sometimes on this show, I feel like we're we're shitting on conceptual thinking, and yet this entire show is an example of deep engagement with conceptual thinking. Thinking. Like you were saying, uh, you can compare a walk- to a kind of cybernetic system and that in itself is a conceptualization of of the walk absolutely but it's a useful conceptualization so it's not like we don't think concepts are good or essential or important it's just that the problem is that when you start thinking um replacing things with their concepts instead of seeing th- concepts as just more things it can create you know impassable kind of hurdles in your head yeah and you get stuck you get stuck in thoughts when you when you're reduced to just thinking through con, juggling concepts. Mm-hmm. It's like materialism and idealism. Well, on paper, they both work. So really, what is it that's going to tell you if you have to choose between those two, just to have an example, what could possibly compel you to choose? which is exactly what the thing that Nietzsche discovered. concepts are always affects in disguise. The reason you're a materialist isn't because you've weighed all the options and come to the conclusion at the end of this long column of pros and cons that materialism was the best answer, and then the world bears that out. It's that something in you is attracted for irrational reasons to that way of thinking. It's that there's some kind of affective engagement or investment on your part in that way of thinking. and But the whole um, validity of conceptual thinking uh, hinges on ignoring that. And pretending that everything is just purely conceptual. Oh, my opinion is just based on purely intellectual deductions that I've made. But of course, just saying that shows me something about your personality that that is that isn't shared by everyone, that's unique to you, that's that's idiosyncratic. So, in a sense, like even the most rationalistic discourse ever put down on paper or delivered in a lecture hall was at bottom a kind of seething affect. The same type of forces that you see at work in a jungle where plants are devouring each other and animals are stalking one another in the night. That's the kind of energy that hides behind the crystalline facade of purely conceptual thought. Everything, as Nietzsche said, is, is ultimately, everything is will to power. Something I believe, as long as we nuance the terms.
1: to talk a little bit about this Michel de Chateau essay. Um, It's a chapter from The Practice of Everyday Life. This is a relatively short chapter at the beginning of part three. Uh, And the whole book, Practice of Everyday Life, is an attempt to deal with some of the problems of particularly French postmodern thinking. And post-Marxist thinking, thinking, for example, about the problem of administration, rational administration of human beings in modern society, and the problem of resistance, how do we resist being administered in this fashion? And de Chateau's book is an attempt to really kind of move away from those crystallized digital forms of thought to the everyday, the the, the facts on the ground, the Salvatore Ambalando lived granularity of reality. Mm -hmm. And so he talks about a number of practices, including cooking, for instance. But here he's talking about walking. And the figure that he is developing throughout this pretty short chapter is a distinction he's making between voyeurs and walkers. And to introduce the idea of what a voyeur is, it doesn't mean it in a sexual sense necessarily, but it's the idea of somebody who sees the whole, sees the plan, sees the abstract arrangement of things. And to develop this idea, he uses the World Trade Center in Manhattan, which of course um, was destroyed in 2001. But for him, this is what he calls the prow of Manhattan. And in some ways, the emblem, not just of the city, but of a certain idea of the city as a grid, as a map, as a concept, something that can be administered and rationally known. So a voyeur is somebody who is partial to a particular kind of experience, an experience that can be had on the 110th floor of the World Trade Center. And he's interested in what he calls the erotics of knowledge, that is associated with this mode of knowledge. And he, he asks, to what erotics of knowledge does the ecstasy of reading such a cosmos, a cosmos that is laid out before us, like a diorama that can be read, that is transparent to thought. What's the erotics of knowledge that belongs to this mode? Having taken voluptuous pleasure in it, I wonder what is the source of this pleasure of seeing the whole, of looking down on, totalizing the most immoderate of human texts, by which he means Manhattan, or more generally, the modern metropolis. And he writes, to be lifted to the summit of the World Trade Center is to be lifted out of the city's grasp. One's body is no longer clasped by the streets that turn and return it, according to an anonymous law nor is it possessed whether as player or played by the rumble of so many differences and by the nervousness of new york traffic When one goes up there, he leaves behind the mass that carries off and mixes up in itself any identity of authors or spectators. An Icarus flying above these waters, he can ignore the devices of Daedalus in mobile and endless labyrinths far below. His elevation transfigures him into a voyeur. It puts him at a distance. It transforms the bewitching world by which one was possessed, into a text that lies before one's eyes. It allows one to read it, to be a solar eye looking down like a God. The exaltation of a scopic and Gnostic drive, the fiction of knowledge is related to this lust to be a viewpoint and nothing more. Well, there you go. Perfectly summed up. Perfectly summed up. Then he switches on to thinking about, okay, so what then is the erotics of knowledge that belongs to the walker? The second section of this essay is titled The Chorus of Idle Footsteps, and it has this little epigram. The goddess can be recognized by her step, which is from Virgil's Aeneid. Hmm. And Deshertoe begins, their story begins on ground level with footsteps. They are myriad, but do not compose a series. They cannot be counted because each unit has a qualitative character, a style of tactile apprehension and kinesthetic appropriation. Their swarming mass is an innumerable collection of singularities. Their intertwined paths give their shape to spaces. They weave places together. In that respect, pedestrian movements form one of these real systems whose existence, in fact, makes up the city. And that's a quote from an essay by a French writer named Alexander Charles, Alexander, I think. Yeah, they are not localized. It is rather that they spatialize. They are no more inserted within a container than those Chinese characters speakers sketch out on their hands with their fingertips. Hmm. He's got some he's got some good shit here. And uh, he also has a really interesting way of thinking about how the the first of these modes the voyeur mode uh, he says linking the city to the concept never makes them identical but it plays on their progressive symbiosis to plan a city is both to think the very plurality of the real and to make that way of thinking the plural effective it is to know how to articulate it and be able to do it Just pretty much exactly what you just said. Exactly. How to use
0: symbols properly. Yeah. Right. Um, The French and the English, you know, Um, I see you as a Brit, Phil. Yeah, fair enough. You're just a Brit pretending to be uh, a Canadian American. Um, And what I like about Brits is that they don't create problems when none exist. The British are great walkers. There's a long tradition of walking in Britain. And all my British heroes were good walkers. George Orwell was a fantastic walker. Yeah. Uh, John Coper Powis, my favorite British novelist, was a, an amazing walker. Will Self, a contemporary of ours, an elder of sorts to us, I guess, uh, is a great walker. He walked from He walked from London to New York. He walked to the airport, walked onto the plane. I don't know if he paced up and down the aisle in the plane (laughs) and walked out of the airport in in New York and walked over to, I can't remember where his final destination was, but he's a great walker. Um, The French are also great walkers, but the French are the, I think it's the French who have devoted the most ink to thinking about walking and trying to explain to themselves why the fuck they were walking because the French always create problems where none (laughs) exist (laughs) and, uh, or perceive problems where nobody saw them before. Yeah. And what you just read is such a beautiful distillation of everything we've been talking about so far, this kind of dichotomy of the, the conceptual and the analog, the digital and the analog manifested in kind of geo, geographical terms, I guess, mm-hmm. um, topo- in a kind of topography. Mm. But one great movement in the French tradition that I think we that, that I heard kind of evoked there is, um, is psychogeography, Oh, yeah. The way that the situationists thought about walking. So the situationists were a group of intellectuals and revolutionaries in 1950s, 60s in France. One of their leaders was Guy Debord, who wrote The Society of the Spectacle they developed the notion of psychogeography. But this, what they noticed is that a city, it's, it's exactly what was just said there in, in the passage you, you read by de Sertot, is that a, a city has, exists in two places at once. It is an actual analog place, but it is also the manifestation of a digital plan, of, a, of an idea. And so at that level, at the level at which cities are conceptual plans, ideas, opinions... Um, They are mechanisms of control. Mm -hmm. They are designed to control the flow of traffic of, you know, whether it's pedestrian or automotive traffic. They're designed to make you think and act a certain way. Uh, A well-planned city, that is, will do that. And it's very easy when you're a pedestrian to also be a kind of voyeur. You're not necessarily the person that, you, that De Certeau was just describing there because most people walk blindly through the city, ignoring the intolerable interval. they'll be listening to something on their their walkman <laughs> on their in their earbuds <laughs> yeah. they'll be listening they'll be thinking about something else having a conversation, and they're not necessarily walking, walking in the way we're saying now. right. So the situationists um, devise a technique called, they call it la dérive. And la dérive is a way of walking where you resist the plan. You resist the way the city is meant to be used. Mm-hmm. You become conscious of how the, it's not just, as one situationist put it, it's not just the cops, it's the geometry. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's like the geometry of the city itself is a kind of... Um, to put it dramatically, a kind of control apparatus, an apparatus of capture, that by walking in a certain way through a city, you can turn the city into a wilderness, a great line from the Arcade Fire song, and I found myself in the wilderness downtown, Mm. to suddenly step out of the kind of conceptual planned framework in which you're expected to operate while in a city, and to perceive the city as the wilderness that it is, because ultimately everything is wilderness deep down. And therefore, you get to uh, walking can become an act of resistance, and um, and that kind of science of engaging with cities in that way, the Situationists called psychogeography, basically just coming to terms with the fact that every geography is also a conceptual map, and that the conceptual map is in itself part of the real place, yeah. and that you can't just ignore that bit. And in developing this way of thinking about walking, I think that the French revealed something, uh, something important that, that, that has to do with everything we've been talking about. You know, the uh, distinction you may, that Decepto makes between voyeurs and walkers reminds me of Hickey's uh, distinction between um, spectators and participants. Oh, that's nice. I um, thought of that. Another distinction we could make is the, the distinction between travelers and tur- tourists, which are yeah. the same thing, although how how do you figure with that? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm I'm defining the terms as I implicitly here, but what I mean is that I I mean I've never been much of a tourist. I I don't get the thrill of having of seeing something that I. That's on my so-called bucket list, you know, like, oh, uh-huh. the Eiffel Tower. Whenever oh, yeah. I I see something some landmark that way, for me it always feels like I'm it's even less than what I imagined it to be. It
1: always reminds me of what people say about celebrities, that they're always shorter than you think they're gonna be. I always feel this with those kind of um those kind of scene affair, the the things that you're supposed the obligatory scenes Um, Right. And when you're in a touristy sort of place, like Big Ben in London or whatever, it just always seems shorter somehow than you expect it to be.
0: It's true. It's shorter. Yeah. Less grandiose, maybe. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are exceptions. Niagara Falls is pretty amazing. They often end up looking like reproductions of themselves. Exactly. There's a great moment in uh, Punch Drunk Love, Paul Thomas Sanderson's film. There's a moment where the, the main character, Adam Sandler plays the main character. He goes all the way to Hawaii to see this girl that he likes, and it's completely impulsive and crazy for him to leave his whole life behind. Everything's going to shit, and he just leaves and 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 and, and finds her in Hawaii. And then the, you see them; they're sitting on this t- this terrace together, like having a drink, and you can see the ocean behind them. And uh, she, I don't remember the exact dialogue, but something like she's like, "Well, so what do you think of this place?" And she he's like. It's amazing. It looks just like Hawaii. <laughs> you know, because we all know what Hawaii, well, I mean, that's not true, but there's a certain idea of Hawaii yeah. which will be served to you exactly as you expect it to be if you go to the right place in Hawaii. Yeah. If you go to the the Waikiki, you know, district and the right hotel, you will be served exactly what you knew Hawaii should be. Or, what you thought Hawaii should be. It'll be served to you, and you can stay in that hotel and go home and never experience a real fucking place. All you've experienced is some design that was made specifically to meet your mental expectations of what that place should yeah. have been. And therefore, it's like those are the places that appear on maps. Yeah. And what Melville's talking about, that quote, it's like when you step off the main tourist drag or the strip and you find yourself in those little by streets. Um, You know, the places Anthony Bourdain would find, those are the real places, right? But they're not on any map. It just can't be. In fact, to put them on a map, as everybody's doing now with all these websites, oh, these are the little, you know, holes in the wall you need to go discover if you go to Honolulu. Well, it's only a matter of time before before those holes in the wall just become more tourist landmarks. Yeah. Uh, You can't... But
1: the good news is that there is a literal infinity of undiscovered things, points, that will appear on no map at all, just as Herman Melville says. It's true. It's funny, when you engage in a practice of walking, it is a psychologically wholesome practice for any number of reasons. There's And there's scientific studies showing that walking is one of the best things you can do if you're depressed. Um, there's something about the motion of walking, the particular gait of walking that is soothing. It's like rocking a baby to sleep. It's just very soothing to the human
0: body. It's Um, what our bodies were made to do. I mean, that's what we evolved to do. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. We did that for thousands of years. That's That's all we did.
1: That's one thing humans do really well, walking upright. kind of defines what we are, really. And yet, it's not just the biomechanics of walking that makes it a wholesome practice. It Also, I think when you live entirely in an what James would call an intellectualist world when, you know, what you were talking about before, it's like, we're not against thought <laughs> conceptual thought because clearly we engage in it constantly. Um, but you know, what you articulated as your objection to it is really kind of what people mean when they say the map is not the territory, you know, right. when, you, when you start mistaking reified concepts for the actual physical facts on the ground, when you mistake the knowledge, it, gained through the voyeur mode for the knowledge gained through the walker mode. Um, That's the problem, right? And it's a pervasive confusion. Mm -hmm. But I think that when you live within that confusion, as academics very frequently, but intellectuals generally, it's the occupational hazard. You believe that everything that you experience and everything that can be known is that which can be known through this kind of the voyeur's way, you know, the voyeur's style of thought. If you think that way, then the walls close in on you, and it mm-hmm. begins to feel like you live in a very limited and very administered world. And this is something I take uh, de Chateau to be sort of suggesting uh, that there is a kind of a liberation, something that is psychologically wholesome in a, a different way. And the liberation from that claustrophobia, of concepts, that feeling of constriction within the narrow and finite world of concepts. And that when you are released into walking, then you get the world back. The world yeah. is yours. It's like a yeah. jeweled carpet stretching out to infinity. You know, one of the things I like to say sometimes in uh, teaching 20th century music and teaching modernism. 20th century music, modernist music, a lot of it's really challenging, you know, dissonant or atonal, uh, uh, or just weird. And so, you know, when I'm teaching people who are not necessarily 20th century music fans, they're not necessarily modernism fans, and sometimes feel like this shit is kind of baffling, they don't see the point, they say, well, the first question you want to ask is, why would anybody want to do this? And uh, it's not just being weird to be weird, you know, it's not just trying to be baffling. And one of the main, I think, positive and creative, productive motivations of modernism is something that the Russian formalist theorist Viktor Shklovsky came up with when he said that the purpose of art is to make the stone stony. Right. And, you know, that's getting at this technique that's very important to the formalists of, um, of defamiliarization. And that's a classic modernist move. I'm going to take something that you're familiar with, but I'm going to defamiliarize it and it looks weird. And now, because it looks a little weird, now you really see it, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. Picasso is taking the same uh, the same still lifes that we've been seeing for 400 years, but now, or 300 years, but now he's defamiliarizing it by giving it to you in a cubist way. And right. so, like in a way, now that the bottles and the pieces of fruit look all fucked up, but now you really see them, yeah, because you've been kind of startled out of that narcosis that that um, that thing where you see things but you don't really see them, right? Uh, and and you're so you're seeing the
0: concept. Yeah, exactly.
1: You yeah. see the You're concept. Like at the Waikiki
0: Hotel. You're yeah, seeing exactly. the concept of Hawaii. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, I, and the example I always give when I'm teaching to, to, to hit people with this idea is like, so think of a walk that you go on constantly. Like if you live within walking distance from campus or uh, walking distance from downtown or whatever, a walk that you do all the time, multiple times a week. You know, maybe the week you moved in, everything's fresh and you're looking at everything and everything has a certain vividness and uh, particularity to it but then as you just keep going on this walk over and over again little bit by little bit like if there was a stone uh, like a rock in somebody's garden maybe you notice that the first time you did that walk but pretty soon you don't even see it you know you you don't even know it's there and the whole idea is to make that stone stony again, that you feel the stoniness of the stone. And that defamiliarization is sort of like the technique by which you do that, right? But I feel like walking is that defamiliarization applied that, you know, that fundamental thing the modernists were after
0: applied to all of life, to your Mm -hmm.
1: existence,
0: Right. Because something happens in a walk where you gain new perspectives on what's, you know, we've been talking a lot about the geography and the land and the the elements and things you encounter on the way. Uh, But in truth, a lot of thinking happens in walking. And it's often in walking that I get a good perspective on my life, right? On the story that I'm, you know, co-creating by just breathing and doing all the shit I have to do every day. Right. Um, You get new perspectives on that. You're, you're making your life lifey again. Yes. You're <laughs> making the a, life lifey. I love that. Yeah, That's Your great. life starts to look like a story, and um, which is why, I mean, I mean, who am I to give anybody advice? But if I were asked to give advice, I would say two things. The first thing is to take regular walks, and I should live by my own advice here. And the other thing would be to keep a dream journal, which I think somehow is connected mm-hmm. because a dream journal is to make dreams dreamy again. Yeah, Uh, it's what you. you, What happens when you practice dream journaling is that you're giving dreams the attention they crave. You're giving Morpheus, the god of dreams. Or sleep, whatever. Morpheus, yeah, dream, yeah. right. You're making a You're little giving...
1: sacrifice to him, a sacrifice of your attention and the uh, time you took to write it.
0: Exactly, and your dreams, and he will pay you back tenfold. Yep. The next night, the dreams will be clearer. And in those times in my life, I'm not in one of those times now where I've, you know... Um, Religiously practiced dream journaling. My dreams become a whole new dimension of life, and I think it's the same with walking. I mean, in a sense, maybe walking is a kind of dream—a walking because dream. There's, yeah. A, 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 well, because there's a rift, right? When you I'm going for a walk, all of a sudden everything stops. All your cares kind of transform in a way, or become less. They they, they lose their hold on you. So what you're saying, you're free. And when I'm really in the mood for a walk and I leave and I experience like I got that first breath of fresh air and I see, you know, one thing you experience in walking, you experience why most cultures in the world split the universe into two um uh, substances, heaven and earth, right? A walk is always uh, beholding of heaven and earth. There's always the land and the yeah. sky. That's you're the, between the most, heaven and earth. You're between them, just like in the, you know, in the I Ching or the, the Taoist yeah. cosmology, man stands in between those two entities. Yeah. When you're released from all those cares, it's like you're, it's a it's a per- parenthetical um, experience it's it's bound by parentheses. it's not happening. it's it's like uh it's not something you would include if you were to write out the, your narrative of your life. It's like this uh, this kind of exceptional moment and therefore it's like a dream. and the way you think when you're walking, at least when I'm walking properly and I'm always I'm not always walking properly. if I'm listening to a podcast, this doesn't happen. um if I have to be there's certain things I need to do, but when it's being when I'm doing it properly. I'm in a dream. I'm in a dream that is also the real. I'm in reality, which is a dream, like in the weirdest, most literal sense of the word. It, and, you're, and again, we get back to that idea that there's a new kind of thinking that comes to the fore in dreaming. I mean, who's thinking? We were just uh, we just did a, a, an exchange uh, on our Patreon about a dream you had this week, and we touched on this in the in the in the dialogue. Is like who made that dream? Well, it wasn't the fill that you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't the fill that I know who put, who designed that dining room and that weird entity floating above the dining room table, who put those props there, you know, um, where does that thinking reside? Can we, does it, what does it mean to say that happened in your brain? I mean, doesn't, it doesn't even mean anything. Yeah. It happened on multiple levels. And I don't know. This to engage in that kind of waking dream that is walking seems to be more to me to be more than an important or a profitable practice. It's kind of like essential. Um, I've had this experience twice in my life. Once once was when I had my my daughters, and the other time was when. Uh, Whenever I walked out and took a walk, especially out in the woods where I was really in the mood, it's like I can't believe this is free. That's <laughs> always like <laughs> I can't believe like I won't get a bill for this. This is so amazingly magical and strange and new and real, and it fulfills all my expectations as to um, the the wonder I seek in life. That I. It, I just can't believe I don't have to pay for this. (laughs) Like It's like that magical. And a dream is the same way. What a gift. It's like the gratuitous self-giving of reality. If you just give it time, it'll give you wonders. It'll give you magic. It'll give you miracles that like any dream, you can't really tell your friends about it after. They won't get it. It's between you and the dream. It's between you and the world. It's between you and the real. I think that
1: you were talking about the Situationists' practice of the dérive. You know, I think that that is—it's uh, worth noting that Situationists had uh, surrealist investments. Oh yeah. You know, they cared about dreams a lot, and I think that a lot of these sort of practices of walking are also practices of dreaming. And the one I'm thinking of in particular. I didn't read this in the in some of the original situationist document. I read this at second hand. But uh, it's a practice where you use a map from one city to walk the streets of a different city. Yeah. So it would yeah. be like if you were in London and you had a map of Paris and you were trying to find the Tuileries or whatever, you know, obviously you wouldn't see that place. You would go some other place. But like in the process of following a map from one place in order to navigate the space of another, it seems to me that that would create... I actually haven't done this, so like I, I'm just I just think it's a cool idea. Uh, but it seems to me that it would have the effect, uh, it would have a very dreamlike effect. This collision mm-hmm. of incommensurate perspectives, which you also often have in dreams, except in dreams, you know, you're not just entertaining them as incommensurate perspectives. You're walking them. You're you're actually living them, and you tend mm-hmm. not to even to step outside and be like, wow, this is weird. That's a funny thing about dreams. Like I remember once having a dream about a dog uh, that was cut in half, not gorily, not nastily. It's just like the dog ended halfway down its spine. And so it was just walking impossibly on its front legs, but with the back end just hovering in space. Looked like a Dalí painting. And in my dream, I was just like, yeah, you know, whatever. It didn't occur to me that that's weird. And then when I woke up, I'm like, that's so fucking weird. And I was sort of at the time trying to figure out how to lucid dream which I quickly lost enthusiasm for, because it seems to me if I actually succeeded at lucid dreaming, then I would end up ruining the whole point of dreaming, which is that, you know, it's not something that's been colonized by your conscious mind. But anyway, I remember thinking like, well, shit, it's very difficult to wake up within the dream to figure out while you're dreaming that you're dreaming because self-consciousness where you're like, huh, that's weird, It's odd to see a dog that looks like that uh, almost never occurs to you. And that, it seems to me, is something that happens in walking is that it doesn't do away with that kind of self-consciousness. But on a really good walk, you're just kind of in this space. And I can imagine with that situationist practice of um, remapping uh, of a walk that what would happen be that you would be very attentive to everything in your immediate particular environment, but because the map is like shortcutting the using the wrong map is like shortcutting that practice of like short self, circuiting, short circuiting yeah. that practice of like, uh, uh, that self-reflection,
0: which is not to say that, that, um, I'm clinging on to one thing that you said there, which is the, that the, how the weird, weird things in dreams or on walks uh, can look banal, um, and normal, that's not to say that the weird and the uncanny don't intrude in these spaces at all uh there's a great scene in fire walk with me where um david lynch's uh, prequel to the original twin peaks series where laura palmer is in bed she wakes up i have vague memories of the scene she turns around there's a corpse lying with her in bed i think it's the corpse of theresa banks maybe no or is it's it annie and it's not Annie, a corpse. Right. She's,
1: she's all bloodied up because she's been assaulted by Wyndham Earl, but she's not dead. She's just injured. And she's right, lying right. and she's lying there corpse-like. And she just says in this kind of like weird monotone, um, it's this thing about how the good Dale Cooper is, is right. stuck in the lodge and can't get out. Something like that.
0: And Laura Palmer kind of listens to her. And then she turns around again and totally banal to have this like bloodied corpse-like figure in her bed. Then she turns and looks and the corpse is gone. And that's when she freaks out and the music is like, (laughs) like, all (laughs) fucking crazy. She's not there anymore. But the horror, I mean, he's reversing the order in which any other filmmaker would have done it. Right. It's the corpse that's scary. Not the fact that the corpse is suddenly not there. Um, Someone disappearing is... Weird, but a corpse being in bed with you is weirder. <laughs> <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> so and yet and that's the moment where you get all the, the dissonant music and the weirdness. And I just found that that's the type of weirdness that happens in dreams. It's sometimes the most banal little detail that becomes monstrous and menacing. And likewise, on a walk, it's sometimes just well that weird birch. And there's nothing more banal than this fucking birch on that lawn as I pass by, or that particular boulder in the woods. But something about it is different and weird. And you're seeing that because you're in that open space. You're sensitive to ideas, to realities that come from outside the ambit of your, you know, the little green pastures of your usual thinking patterns. You're in this this non-space and then things can reveal themselves to you. I would argue that the weirdness of that boulder or that birch or of the fact that that corpse disappeared, the weirdness doesn't come from your own expectations and your own. It actually, you're seeing something that's actually there. I think Lionel Snell, uh, and you know, when he says like, when you take a walk and you see it as a kind of everything you see, you interpret as a synchronicity or a sign. Yeah. And then it leads you places. Mm -hmm. If it leads you anything anything worthwhile, well, you can definitely make the argument that those were actual signs, that the world is speaking to us, that the world is a kind of text we must read. But we don't read it from the 130th floor looking down. We read it in the kind of like granular, uh, uh, slippery, slimy, amorphous doing of the thing with our feet on the ground, you know, actually traversing, navigating these strange spaces, which speak to us in a language that's foreign to us. But in a sense, it's the language we know more intimately than any other, right? Somehow we have access to this because we're made of flesh and bone and sinew and the world. We're made of this material stuff that the world is made of. And our minds pretend that they hover above it, but in the end, our minds are part of it, too. I mean, yeah, it's true that the map is not a territory. But if you're a tick and you land on a map, the map is a territory.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's a good point. ¶¶
0: Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.